Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. of the press isn't just important to democracy, it is democracy. We're here to hold elected leaders accountable. Yeah. Want to thank all of you out there for joining us. Hi, I'm Jane Whitney. Thanks for joining us for the season premiere of the Conversations on the Green podcast. It may feel like a lifetime, but it's only been months since the deadly coronavirus turned our world upside down and forced us to make changes in our lives we never dreamed possible. To help us explore whether a global pandemic that's caused so much pain and suffering could actually serve as a bridge to a better future, three distinguished guests joined us on May 17th for our first live virtual town hall. CNN presidential historian and best-selling author Doug Brinkley, bioethicist and former advisor to the Obama administration Dr. Zeke Emanuel, and two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist Nick Kristof. Here's our conversation. We're going to be talking about how you see life after COVID-19. But first, I want to start with where we are, and I want to start with you, Zeke. From the get-go of this pandemic, We were really never given a straight story about how dangerous it was. There was a lot of magical thinking involved. In other words, we didn't always get the science and the facts. Now, at this point, President Trump is saying that we've met the moment and we've prevailed. On the other hand, epidemiologist from Yale, Greg Gonsalves, says that right now we're in the throes of genocide by default. Two two pretty big extremes. Can you give us a sense of what the science says about where we are right now? Those are pretty big extremes. And uh, we are in the early stages of this pandemic. And I think uh, you said it does feel like uh, a lifetime uh, in the United States uh, since we've sort of taken action. It's been 10 weeks. And if you want to push back, it's been four months. Uh, since it's been on the shores here uh, in the United States. Uh, We have about uh, 86,000-plus deaths, um, and millions of people are infected. Exactly how many, we don't know for sure. Um, And it's going to persist longer. Uh, We haven't turned the corner. It may be going down. uh, it's a little hard to say because if you take the American numbers and you extract New York where it is going down, it's probably still rising in the country. Um, but it's going; it may flatten out over the summer because of the combination of weather and being outdoors, which makes transmission harder. Um, but almost every epidemiologist is predicting a recurrence uh, in the fall when we move inside and the weather gets uh, more fortuitous for viral transmission. Um, And that's, I think, going to be a problem. Um, We are going to see a second wave. Uh, That's uh, inevitable, Uh, almost inevitable. It could disappear, but that's very, very unlikely. It doesn't look like it's behaving like SARS. Um, And so we're going to have another resurgence and an increase um, uh, of death 
which is, I think, uh, very problematic. We don't know how many resurgences we're going to have. The flu pandemic of 1918, 1919, and 1920 had four very distinct peaks. Um, uh, the second peak was the largest, and the second to largest was actually the fourth peak. Um, so we're probably in for another uh, uh, long haul. And until we get a vaccine, um, we're going to, uh, you know, be under this cloud. And, you know, it, it is a cloud. It's up. I mean, one of the things which I think people find hard is it's very unpredictable. We know that it focuses on elderly people with comorbidities, but clearly people who have no comorbidities are not elderly, are susceptible to serious complications and even death. Okay, let me ask you, I'm going to use the figure 60 days. We're 60 days into this. And so far, with the exception of the states and, and some of the local governments who have been the real heroes of this whole thing, there's no plan, there's no framework, there's no strategy. And we sort of feel, I mean, at this point, Estonia and Serbia do more testing per capita, it's my understanding, than we do in this country. So that whole gap of time when we could have been you know, the lockdown could have given us time to sort of build a plan. I mean, am I missing something? Is there a plan? No, I think you're 100% right. Um, the president did release a plan uh, last month. Uh, it was not very detailed, uh, but it did have, uh, I like to say, a couple of advantages. It said it made it clear that this is going to be stepped, that there are phases. It's not going to happen. Reopening is not going to happen all at once. And second of all, that uh, different industries, different places that we are, are going to open at different rates because of the risk of transmission. But a larger game plan, a game plan of how to test, how to uh, contact trace, how to uh, institute these public health measures and make sure they become the norm, like wearing face masks out in public, um, that right. isn't present. And I think probably the most um, damning, if you will, uh, uh, lack of a plan is the fact that the CDC has not issued detailed guidance um, and what has been issued has been quite thin um, and it's leaving it to every individual business, every individual industry, uh, school, organization to develop their own detailed plan about how they need to open up. And so you have now a proliferation of plans at the state level, at the individual company level, um, rather than a baseline coming from the CDC so everyone could know what a minimum standard is and if they want to go over it. It's, I mean, I have to say that it has to be one of the most disappointing, and I'm sure for the internal people working at CDC, one of the most disheartening uh, parts of this. I think the president at one point said that um, he, he, he's a cheerleader. Um, and uh, what we really need is a leader who's going to recognize the um, difficulty of this task, prepare the country, uh, but walk the talk. And uh, this president has clearly refused to uh, do that. You don't have to look any further than his refusal to wear a mask out in public. Right. OK. Well, as you may know, this is a, a virtual town hall series. And so, of course, we've had to regroup like everybody else. And we've taken questions when people registered and people sent them in on videos. And and the number one question, Zeke, and this will not surprise you, is people want to know when some semblance of their previous life is going to return. And what's the short answer to that? Well, it depends what they mean by some semblance. So. Normalcy, 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 as we experience it in 2019, is going to require a vaccine and a vaccine that 
80% of the American population gets, that will give up, get us herd immunity. When exactly that happens is unclear. The predict, predictions that we had this past week by uh, the president uh, that it's going to happen before the end of the year, I think most people are quite skeptical of that. Probably in 2021, we'll have, we could have a vaccine, but that won't be distributed to enough people until we get uh, towards uh, Q4, the fourth quarter of 2021 at the earliest. Um, so that's when you're going to see normalcy, normalcy. Nonetheless, there are, you know, the summer does afford us this advantage of being outdoors, warmer weather, um, right. and uh, some understanding of who's at risk. And I think we will get to back, back to some normalcy with that. Um, that doesn't mean you're going to be eating in restaurants. It doesn't mean you're going to be going to your religious services and singing. It doesn't mean you're going to go to baseball games and scream and get your concessions. Um, but, you know, so we're going to have to reconceptualize what some semblance of normalcy is. Um, and I do think, you know, normalcy in terms of shaking hands, in terms of not wearing a mask and those things. No, we're not going to have that uh, for a couple of more years. Normalcy in terms of being able to go out and picnic, um, being able to uh, go uh, potentially go to stores. Um, I think that is going to uh, slowly return. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you this point blank. If we had had a plan, do you have any estimate of how many lives could have been saved? Uh, <laughs> we could have he... done much better than we've done. I, 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 I think Nick Kristoff is uh, uh, early on published uh, a very wonderful graphs uh, working with the Toronto group about how, you know, a week earlier having uh, earlier lockdown, having testing, being able to contact trace better. Um, tens of thousands is the answer, uh, maybe as, ma as many as half uh, of the number. And I think the best place to look at it is Taiwan. Taiwan prepared for this. SARS scared the living daylights out of them, and they prepared heavily for this. Um, and they've had, uh, I think, 500 cases and less than uh, 10 deaths. Um, so it could have made a big difference if we if the president had taken it seriously in January, um, had issued a, a national stay at home policy um, and encouraged all the governors to follow suit, uh, done more, gotten the testing right between the CDC, the FDA and commercial labs. Um, I think, you know, probably 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people is what we're talking about as of today. I just want that number to sink in with people a lot of people. Um, yeah, I'm going to turn to Doug at this point. Doug, we hear that this is a historical, world historical moment. We hear that it's an era-defining moment. We hear that this will define our generation in the same way that World War II defined our parents' generation. How do you see this? I think that's true. I mean, the world's going to be seen, in, at least in, in America, we're going to be thinking of pre- COVID and post-COVID, and we're all looking forward to a post-COVID world where hopefully we can do things better next time. But, you know, as a historian, my job's always to remind people that our own times aren't uniquely oppressive. And if you just go back in American history, I mean, our, the whole story of our country is one of plagues and illness and disease uh, that you would think would have derailed our democratic experiment. I mean, during the Revolutionary War, the British actually um, were starting to use um, smallpox as an offensive weapon um, to, to destroy the Continental Army. And if it wasn't for George Washington uh, inoculating 
his troops with the smallpox vaccine, and they didn't even know back in the 1770s what germs and viruses were. It was very lucky that we were able to have a smallpox inoculation, and uh, it saved American troops, and it ended up maybe creating our country. No inoculation for smallpox, there may not have been a United States. And you just look at turning points and see how disease has ravaged us. I mean, the Spanish-American War, you had about one, uh, three out of like every five soldiers who died were from typhoid fever and other diseases. And World War One, uh, having to do with the Spanish flu and what influenza did. Um, what's the point of all that? That's to try to be hopeful that we've gone through perilous times and it usually arouses our scientific community and doctors. You know, in World War I, there were, when Woodrow Wilson got the Spanish flu while he was in Paris and his daughter was infected and his personal assistant did, Wilson almost died from it. Um, but yet we kind of forget about it today up until people reading John Barry's book recently where it's re-become re a bestseller, people had sort of forgot about the Spanish flu epidemic in many ways because life moves forward. So I think now is opportunity to start thinking about the post-COVID um, you know, world. And it was in World War II that we were able to start using antibiotics for the first time to stop tetanus and, and mumps and, and you know, um, control influenza and do new kinds of things with sanitation. So there's an opportunity now for us to reconfigure ourselves for the middle part of the 21st century um, with new medical miracles that everybody around the world's racing to concoct right now. So potentially in a good way, this could be a real paradigm shift as you see it. Um, let me just talk about World War II because you mentioned it for a second. They really showed, the Brits showed that when you're, when you're together on something, when you're united and have a shared purpose, you do better. Now, we're living in a country that in many ways is very, very divided. So I was very surprised to see that the latest poll shows that 82% of Americans feel that we're more united than we are divided. Does that, does that surprise you, Doug? I mean, does that mean that we're going to do a better job of weathering this storm? Well, you know, when you look at, there's no question we're in a neo-civil war between the Republicans and Democrats. It's unfortunate that um, this pandemic hit during the 2020 election cycle. Politics is playing too big a job in it. But I'm here in Austin, and I have three kids, two in high school, one in middle school, and I don't know if their parents are for Trump or Biden. When I go down the street and I see people with masks, I'm just seeing a community that's by and large following the protocol, and maybe the undersold story here is how many Americans were willing to try to stay inside, try to wear masks, try to social distance, uh, and, and that's Democrats and Republicans. Uh, are there jerks and yahoos that are creating conspiracy theories and confusing people and are sitting right now um, and uh, ignoring social distancing at bars or beaches? Absolutely, that exists. But the core of America is kind of pulled together. 
Nobody's asking whether the doctors or nurses or Democrats or Republicans when they're working our hospitals right now. And in World War II, nobody really cared when you were put on transport ships or you were going into battle, how you voted. So there is a way to look at this as kind of uniting the country. Um, but but on the other hand, we are divided. So we'll have to see how this all plays out. I would call a united America one that emerges from this saying, we've got to do better on public health deal with climate change, start putting scientists at the forefront of American life and not, and not putting them at the, in a bottom rung. In 1960, when John F. Kennedy was president, scientists were picked by Time Magazine as the persons of the year. This year, we would say the persons of the year are our doctors and nurses, medical experts, and we gotta build on that. We gotta really take public health Seriously, we spent all this money on the DOD and missiles, and we're going to have a new nuclear showdown. Billions, trillions of dollars spent, but we have neglected our, our public health responsibility, and we were caught largely, almost completely off guard for COVID-19. Let me just ask you one more question then, because um, you know systematically for 40 years there's been a war on how government is seen, that government can't be a force for good, that there has been a war on science and experts are seen as elitist very often, and a war on facts. Now, Doug, based on what you just said, it sounds like you have some hope that you're seeing people come home to the science, to the facts, to the fact that government can actually be a force for good. Are you actually seeing that shift? I think whatever Donald Trump is, I mean, he has a lot of blarney. He's a kind of a, a, a salesman, a, a carny figure in many ways, and he entertains people. And they, a lot of people have stayed with Trump and are continuing to stay with him. However, when you're sick, when your grandmother is sick, when your daughter is sick, you're not interested in the Blarney and the used car salesmanship. You're not interested in right-wing blogs. You're interested in healing and trying to heal individuals that have been attacked with COVID-19 and save lives. And so I think this woke people up in some ways to because everybody's being affected by it that we're going to have to um, care more about um, you know prenatal care and how do we deal with issues of obesity and diabetics, and also how do we keep our stockpile going um, for um, a, a, this type of pandemic again. When Bill Clinton was president in the 1990s, he read Richard um, Preston's novel science thriller, The Hot Zone, and also one called The Cobra Effect. And he called Preston to the White House, and Bill Clinton pulled together people on pandemics and start recognizing this could be one of the biggest threats ever. And we started building these warehouses all over the country with surgical gowns and masks and antibiotics and things, you know, ventilators. That was the 90s. But since then, people started, they got antiquated and nobody cared anymore. And nobody being polled the last election, how, where do you put public health on the list of your most important worries? It, it wasn't even on the list. So we've got to wake up to, we're doing destruction on the planet, that climate change is real, we've got to listen to scientists, and we can be more prepared for future pandemics or biological attack because we, we failed at this time. The Trump administration, in my view, lost two months of um, dragging before they kindly woke up to what was really happening. Nick, um, in the last couple of weeks, you've written two jarring columns, first of all, about how the death count uh, has been severely undercounted, 
uh, you at this point feel that we're well past 100,000 American lives lost. And you presented compelling data for that. You've also written about about how you think that the virus is really winning at this point. Now, we do see the confirmed cases are declining. Do you still see the virus as winning? Tell us why. I think we've made some uh, progress since uh, I wrote the virus is winning. Now, I'd say we're, you know, we're fighting it out. Um, but I do think that there's a gulf between a lot of the public perceptions and that of epidemiologists in, in a couple of ways. One is that there are a lot of armchair epidemiologists out on Twitter who are absolutely confident about what's going to happen down the road. And the real experts, you know, they say we really don't know. And we still don't fully understand the patterns in 1918 about why, you know, some localities uh, suffered as much as they did and others didn't. And in some, in some cities, some, you know, famously Philadelphia uh, screwed up the, the policy and St. Louis did a terrific job, but there are still a lot of the patterns in 1918 that we don't understand. And so, and we don't understand in this year why some countries have been uh, spared, even though, like Cambodia, even though they did nothing right. So, uh, you know, I think um, there's a lot of humility among experts about how to gauge the uh, tide of battle that is not found among the public. And I think likewise, there's a sense among many people in the public and in our political leadership, that this is a you know a short period we need to get through, and then we come out on the other side and and then we're okay. And in fact, you know, and, and Zeke alluded to it earlier that uh, there is a lot of uh, I, mean, I think epidemiologists think that um, it's hard to predict and we don't know exactly what the pattern of waves will be, but that this is going to be a you know a problem for the probably the next year and a half uh, that we're going to face and that we're going to lose a lot of lives in. And I don't think that that has fully sunk into the, uh, the public consciousness. Um, so having emphasized how much humility the experts have, I don't, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be wary of, you know, assessing the state of battle uh, right now. I, I must say, you know, it was encouraging to see Georgia uh, open up and um, not, and more than two weeks later, to still have new infections not be, you know, bursting into the skies. Today, there were reports that hospitalizations are up, but, uh, you know, there, there is some sense that there are some ways to manage this if we do it right. The one thing I think we've learned is how much we don't really know. As you said, it's been a humbling experience. But I also want to ask you about what President Obama said yesterday during a commencement address which was that this virus has really shaken up the status quo and it's exposed all sorts of inequities and unequal suffering, systemic racism. When you were awarded your second Pulitzer Prize, which was for covering genocide in Darfur, you were called a voice for the voiceless. So I wanna ask you, when you hear people say we're all in this together, what goes through your head? Well, you know, we say all the time how the virus is an equal opportunity killer. And of course, it isn't because society is not an equal opportunity society. So you have African-Americans who are, depending on the study, two and a half or three times as likely to die from it as whites. And um, this comes on top of a profoundly unequal uh, social and economic and health structure, uh, one in which the 
top 1% has a life expectancy at birth. It is 20 years longer than that of the bottom 20%. And so far, COVID has magnified those inequities around the country. You know, I think it's very hard to gauge where this goes down the road. The, the 2008-2009 economic crisis magnified the uh, opportunity gaps in this country, and we moved on from there, and, and they continued to be exacerbated. Um, that may happen this time. COVID is, is it's not only is going to exacerbate the, the gaps in this country, um, it's you know, impoverishing the poor in a way that is not impoverishing the rich. 40% of people in households earning less than $40,000 a year uh, have lost their jobs. Uh, on the other hand, if you're at the top end of the socioeconomic spectrum, that is less likely. Likewise, internationally, um, there is going to be a pandemic of, of hunger and illiteracy that is going to follow the COVID uh, pandemic. But, you know, but there's also hope because, as you say, this does expose longstanding inequities in this country and at times of chronic disease, then the elites are not necessarily threatened by some people who don't have access to health care. In times of infectious disease, we are all only as safe as, 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 as everyone else is safe. And so it may be that there will now be some pressure to increase access to health care, to increase paid sick leave, and that we will begin to address some of these inequities that virtually every other advanced country already has addressed. You went to two New York City hospitals on location and you captured the humanity and the heartbreak in a, I think it was six and a half minute long piece. And we were lucky enough to talk to the New York Times and to be able to get that footage, some of that footage to share with our viewers right now. So let's take a look at life and death in the hot zone. While intubated, patients can't speak. And what everybody knows is that they probably will never speak again. Ventilators may be life-saving, but most patients still die. Death here has no dignity. Patients can't have visitors. They're scared. They can't even see their nurse's eyes. I've reported on lots of deaths in my career, and this feels particularly brutal. Someone codes, someone dies, you go on to the next patient. Someone codes, someone dies, you go on to the next patient. And you don't have time to process those emotions until you get home. I like, I have cried just at home thinking about it all. Just when you get home, you finally take a breather, and that's when you let it all out because you don't have time to process those emotions. These doctors and nurses are risking their lives, and we're failing them. Some told me of their deep frustration with the government's response. We catastrophically bungled testing. The president dithered. Americans kept on partying. The result? Thousands of needless deaths. Oh, I was in the intensive care unit. The second patient who came in and was tested positive was a 27-year-old. I'm 29 right now. I'm just as healthy as this patient. It, it just oftentimes feels like a roll of the dice. I spent 12 hours by his bedside with all my PPE on. He would grab my hand and I just kept telling him that everything is going to be okay, that we were doing the best we could. But I could see the fear in his eyes. And it was heartbreaking because this is still so new to us. So we're just doing what we can and we don't know 
what's going to happen. As I see it, the triumph here lies in the courage and humanity of the health workers. This may not be enough to defeat the virus, but it's magnificent to witness. I've watched it. I've watched it a dozen times, and it's just so powerful. You have seen, by your own admission, death. You've witnessed atrocities. Can you characterize how going into those hospitals was a was a unique experience for you? Most of the time that I've spent in hospitals in my career has been in hospitals in poor countries, and. Here you go into a New York hospital, and it has every possible bit of diagnostic equipment, uh, ventilators. I mean, it has unbelievable equipment, and yet that equipment isn't working terribly well. And we don't really know very well how to save these lives. And so, what struck me was that even though our technology for now, was not working so successfully. The humanity of those health workers, and you know, what struck me the most maybe was the way they were holding hands of patients and trying to reassure them. And it's this ancient primeval gesture, but it worked. And it, in the face of this viral challenge that is preying on our human relationships, it was a way of asserting our humanity. And um, I think that was the thing that moved me the most from my hospital visits, that desperate effort to assert humanity and reassure people who were desperately afraid. I just want to ask something, listening to you, you seem like such a, clearly you're a humanitarian, but you seem like such a sort of even keeled kind of person. And yet given the things you've seen, do you ever get angry? Yeah. Um, when you see, so I think a lot of people think that I'm, <laughs> that I must be kind of the Eeyore of journalists, this, you know, incredibly gloomy, mournful person because I cover genocide and sex trafficking and war. Um, but in fact, you know, over the course of my journalistic lifetime, I've seen immense progress. And, you know, just since the year 2000, the number of children dying before the uh, age of five has dropped in half. I've seen millions of lives saved. Disease, it, leprosy used to be so much more common. Um, diarrhea used to kill so many more people. So many more people going blind from trachoma, from river blindness, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But if that is inspiring, it's also infuriating when you see that we have tools to address uh, problems at home or abroad, and then we leave that toolbox in the corner and don't use it. And it feels to me that that's what happened this time, that, uh, you know, if the state of Kerala in India can manage COVID-19 with its very few resources, uh, then why can't we? Um, the New York Times had its first article about PPE shortages in January, and yet policymakers didn't respond and try to assure those supplies to right. those heroes out there in the hospitals. And I think we also bungled not only the health response, but also the economic response. And yes, that that is infuriating. And, you know, when I pound away at my columns, that's driving me forward okay. sometimes. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll have more conversation with our guests when we return. 
and questions from our virtual audience too. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast. This virtual conversation was taped on May 17th. Our panelists are CNN presidential historian and best-selling author Doug Brinkley, bioethicist and former advisor to the Obama administration Dr. Zeke Emanuel, and two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist Nick Kristof. As I mentioned earlier, we've had a lot of questions come in for the three of you today. And I think we're going to take the first question on video right now. Hi, I'm Hannah from Connecticut. The New York Times has reported that while the New York metropolitan area has seen a clear reduction in their infection curve, the rest of the nation is in fact seeing an increase. Governor Cuomo has enacted one of the strongest responses, saying repeatedly that every life is priceless. He's also seeing a greater reduction in infection. So how would you characterize the actions of other state and local leaders when it comes to the determination of economic health versus public health? And at this point, I'm going to turn to Zeke, because Zeke, I know that you worked on a plan for the Center for American Progress. You are working with our governor, Ned Lamont, right here in Connecticut on a reopening plan. How do you strike that balance that Hen is asking about? Well, it is the case that a number of governors across the country have done a remarkably good job uh, moving from west to east. You might say uh, Jay Inslee and uh, Governor Newsom. have done a great job. I mean, Seattle and Washington have really, they jumped on it. They entrusted their scientists. They had a consistent communication package. They uh, closed schools, asked their uh, companies to bring workers home. Uh, and it has done a remarkable job. They were never overwhelmed. Uh, you move further east, you get uh, uh, people like Pritzker in Illinois and Whitmer in Michigan. You get uh, uh, Mike DeWine, a Republican in uh, Ohio, you get Larry Hogan in Maryland, another Republican. Um, So there has been a sort of bipartisan, some governors have really gone out there and then other governors you're sort of baffled by their uh, response. Uh, You know, Governor Kemp in Georgia saying he didn't know that asymptomatic people could spread this illness, uh, letting Mardi Gras happen. Um, despite uh, the notion that crowds and and, uh, passage when people couldn't physically distance was a serious uh, problem. So it has been a very uneven response across the country. And by and large, when places do shelter in place, have wearing masks, hand washing, uh, workers go home, uh, you do see you can respond. I mean, New York is a very good uh, example where you don't, where people think that you know it's not going to happen here uh, or uh, we can continue with our regular activities, we have seen an increase. Now, that may be muted over the next few months by, because of weather, because the public itself has not waited for governors and, other, and the president to lead and tell them. I mean, all the data that has been published has shown that people actually curtailed their physical, uh, they're going out they're uh, uh, frequenting restaurants and things uh, several weeks before official announcement. So the public itself is hesitant and is putting that hesitancy into action. It's important to reinforce that behavior and not to undercut it by saying, we're ready to open, let's liberate uh, Michigan or Minnesota or what have you. Um, and so I think you know I, a major part going to a question you asked before is the inconsistency of the message and therefore the confusion of the public. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people don't know what the right thing to do is 
um, uh, given that. Um, and that may have repercussions over the next little bit. The interesting thing is that you look at the polls right now and you see that big, big majorities of people, they don't want to go back to restaurants, they don't want to go back to bars or they really, or malls, they, they, you can open these places. The question is whether people are going to have the confidence to actually go into them. And I think it's interesting that it's, again, cutting across um, party lines. It's not, this is not a blue or red kind of issue. If you talk to a lot of economists about this, they will consistently say, given the data, that you know the best therapy here economically is public health, um, uh, because you have to convince people. It's a, initially it's a demand problem, which is people aren't going to shop if they think going to shop exposes them to getting COVID-19 and potentially dying, and they will sit back. That gets reinforced, and unfortunately. People lose income because of the unemployment, and therefore you'll get a typical, you know, they can't spend problem. So often, even if you open, quote unquote, open up or allow uh, stores to open, the amount of economic activity is going to be low because people, the demand side is hesitant. That's why to convince people that it's safe is going to be important to the revival of the economy. Every economist says that and believes that. And so that's the critical element for actually not just opening stores, but actually having robust economic activity. Doug, I, I was going to ask you about the controversy that uh, former Governor Chris Christie kicked up when he talked about the fact that it was our patriotic duty to get the economy going again. And basically that we tolerated a lot of death in World War II. And it's just part of the price you pay so that we can keep the way of life that we all want to have. Um, what do you say to that? I thought Governor Christie was very callous when he said that. And I also think the big problem here is that our country's been rudderless without presidential leadership. Donald Trump has every day switched what he's saying. He's done mixed messaging. His whole goal now is to scapegoat Democratic governors. He's already using the pandemic for political purposes. It seems to me that the guidelines of the White House should have been that our country stays largely shut till June. Uh, instead, we started, he first said President Trump Easter, and then it was late April, and then he started doing weird tweets, liberation tweets, when, uh, when um, the right wing people were protesting in Wisconsin. And so that we, we have no presidential leadership. So all of this now is up to individual governors, but not just governors, mayors uh, and, and, and county officials. For example, where I'm at here in Texas, uh, people in Austin really don't want things open right now. Um, they really like a lot more of a lockdown for a while longer. We're not sure um, whether we want to go back into stores but the state's governor, um, Abbott's made a ruling. Um, be, but in, and so cities like Austin and more progressive cities don't like what the state's doing. So I think in the end, it's just gonna to have to be individual communities have to decide what's best. And if you live a place that you don't feel comfortable with the way our politicians are operating, then stay home the best you can. But in the end, we gotta open up. Uh, we just can't completely shut down. And it's all about a question of timing. I don't know anybody who doesn't want the economy going before. And Nicholas Kristof so well was talking about the economic disparity with all of this. It's one thing for me as a university professor, and I'm not ready to go back, but if I have no money 
and I'm poor and I'm broke and I'm trying to raise three people, there's going to be more of an incentive to get back to work immediately. And so it, in the end, it, a lot of this is a story of two Americas, uh, the Americans that can w w survive this economically and then the, an underclass that's really having a, a difficult time and it's only gonna continue to be difficult because we are in a depression-like situation. And just like there are gonna be four waves of COVID-19, we're gonna have economic downturns popping for the next couple of years too. But in the end, America will prevail. This will get, we will get beyond this. Uh, it's just a question of when. The vaccine's a big game changer, but just also over time. And at least now our country's more prepared for the lockdown drill, a stay at home and wear masks. And I think we're educating young people and a new generation of Americans that this may be, um, a, we, we may always be having to be in, in a pandemic, quasi pandemic mode, or at least be prepared and not be caught completely off guard like we were this time. Okay. Nick, let me ask you about a column you wrote, um, which had the provocative title, McDonald's workers in Denmark pity us because you basically, the premise of that piece was that Denmark sometimes is the butt of jokes. And, and your, your point was that when it comes down to how they've handled this, um, they've done a really good job and we would do well to perhaps heed some of the lessons they've learned. What, what do you think about the way Denmark has handled their reopening? So, um, you know, and, and Zeke alluded to this a little bit earlier, there's sometimes perceived in the U.S. to be a trade-off between getting the economy open and keeping people safe. But fundamentally, the way to preserve the economy is to also keep the virus at bay. And you see that in Denmark, and it responded very early. It did an enormous amount of uh, testing. And so as a result, the uh, deaths per capita, so testing per capita has been more than twice what it has been in the U.S. And deaths per capita have been about half as much as in the U.S. And so as a result, it has been in a better position to uh, open up the economy. And first it opened up childcare facilities. Uh, then later it's been opening up other parts of the economy, uh, in, including the retail sector. But that is based on doing a good job fighting uh, the, the pandemic itself. And in this country, there's been a lot of talk about the Swedish model because Sweden didn't impose a formal, official, economy-wide uh, crackdown, uh, uh, shutdown. But at the end of the day, Sweden's economy seems that it will have more of an economic contraction this year than Denmark's. And it will also lose about three times as many people per capita. And so, you know, it's a reminder of the need to, um, to, to focus on the public health side, and that in turn will protect the economy. Um, but the, the reason that, that McDonald's workers in Denmark um, uh, pity us is, look, you know, they have an economic model that is focused on jobs and jobs that pay well. And mm -hmm. so their economic response was uh, that not, don't just let everybody be laid off and then pay them unemployment, as happened in this country, so that we now have a, a real effective unemployment rate of probably more than 20%, but rather pay employers to keep people in the jobs. And so the last official unemployment rate in Denmark was 
just over 4%. In June, it's uh, expected to rise to just over 5%, but nothing like what we have in other countries. And meanwhile, Denmark has achieved that by spending a smaller share of uh, GDP on the economic response than the U.S. has. Um, and those McDonald's workers in Denmark, the starting pay is $22 an hour with six weeks of paid right. uh, paid leave. And somehow the, the burgers are only 19 cents more than those in the U.S. I mean, there is a business model that does allow one to confer dignity on workers and a reasonable wage in ways that also preserve a certain amount of the social structure and, uh, and the, the social fabric. Uh, we have another question standing by, but I have to ask you this, Nick, because it's so obvious that the countries that did better in handling this pandemic are headed by women. And we just talked about Denmark. They have uh, a female prime minister. Of course, Angela Merkel, um, Iceland, um, uh, New Zealand, the one of the, she, they crushed it. Um, Jacinda, she just like, she just knocked it right out. So I have to ask you, what do you think is the secret sauce there? Why do women do better with this sort of thing? And, and Taiwan, I should mention, too. Um, it's another uh, female-headed uh, place that has done exceptionally well. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. And I mean, I'd say that the N is still pretty small. I'd be a little reluctant to generalize uh, too much about this. But there is, there has historically been a sense that women are uh, good at public health matters in particular. And there was a quite good uh, study done at Stanford that showed that when states in the US uh, provided women's suffrage at the state level, then as a result, state governments then invested more in public health and sanitation in that state because that was perceived to be an issue that women voters cared about. And as a result, they saved a large number of lives in public health. This is a late late 19th century, early beginning of the 20th century. And likewise, there was a, a quite good study in India where uh, village chiefs were uh, randomly assigned to be female at times. And uh, some MIT scholars took advantage of that randomization. And they found that those villages that for perfectly random reasons had a female village chief uh, had better access to water, for example. So, you know, there may, there may be something to the idea that uh, public health concerns, that making society work, that protecting the family uh, are issues that resonate uh, more uh, to women voters and to women leaders. Okay, thank you for that. Um, at this point, I think we have a question. Yes, is that Zeke? Yeah, so one of the things that I notice, and I don't, I don't have a study on this, but. You know, um, we often joke that uh, men drivers never ask for direction. Uh, this is certainly pre uh, the GPS and women drivers do ask for directions. And I actually think there's something to that also in terms of women leadership, uh, in terms of recognizing expertise and asking experts for the advice and men sort of barreling ahead like they got it. Um, and I do think what you what characterizes this uh, pandemic and response to this pandemic is using the science that we know, albeit imperfect. And I think Nick has said this pretty clearly. Look, if there's anything we, there's, this thing is uncertainty, you know, embodied. Uh, we don't know how it exactly kills. We don't know whether it affects pregnancy. I mean, there's so many things we don't know. 
Um, but I do think that recognizing that there is some expertise in epidemiology, there's some expertise in public health responses that we can draw on, I think there's a tendency of women to be willing to defer to expertise a bit more. Um, and we saw, we saw this in American history during the progressive era and stuff. And so I think that combined with the, you know, women are very invested in children, in public health, um, and in making sure that the next generation is really provided for. I think those things do help explain why there may be this woman factor in terms of responding to uh, the COVID pandemic. Oh, there's a there's a factor there. I'm sure of that. Um, at this point, we have a student in Ohio who's standing by with a question that I'm sure a lot of folks want to know the answers to. Hi, my name's Amanda, and I just finished up my junior year at Ohio State. This question is for Dr. Zeke Emanuel. Ohio State is continuing its virtual classes for the summer term, and we're waiting to learn what will happen in the fall. What benchmarks should colleges and other schools consider when determining whether to resume regular classes in the fall and open on-campus housing? What precautions should we as students take if normal classes resume? And how do you see college life changing in the future because of the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, Zeke, she addressed that to you. <laughs> yes, I got it. Um, <laughs> So uh, I've been heavily involved in questions about universities reopening in the fall. Some universities have clearly made a, a commitment not to reopen and to stay online. Uh, you've seen this in the Cal State system in California. Harvard Medical School has put the fall uh, online. Um, other universities are, and colleges are, are clearly trying to decide and trying to see how things uh, are going to play out. Um, so first of all, let's talk about uh, there are multi many factors that are involved. One is, can you physically distance and handle uh, classroom uh, with that? Um, it's hard to have very large classes. I myself teach a class of about 150 students. Very hard that we don't have an auditorium that can probably handle that at the University of Pennsylvania. How are you going to handle that? That means that even if you come back uh, in person, you're still going to have some students that are going to have to do online and probably flip the students from auditorium. You know, one day is, you know, A through uh, M and the next week, the next day, it's going to be N through uh, Z. Um, so I think we're never going to get to a situation where even if we open up campus, you're going to have fully in-person classes during the fall. You may have, uh, you're almost invariably going to have a hybrid. Second or third, there are lots of classes that can't be done via Zoom, you know, architectural studios, clinical encounters for nursing and medical students. Um, and so I think those are gonna have to be done in person um, and we're gonna have to institute a lot of safeguards and protocols around that. Housing is also a problem. Can you provide singles? Um, can you have a place where you can create pods so only a certain number of students intersect with each other so you don't uh, increase the number of people you intersect with and therefore the chance for um, a major super spreading if uh, some uh, student gets sick. Um, and that's focusing on the students. Then you've got faculty and staff. And there the problem is that they're not young invincibles. Um, and, you know, par part of that problem is, you know, for you students who are, say, under 25, the risks are relatively low. They're not zero, but they're relatively low. But for faculty and staff who are older, who have uh, comorbidities, 
much higher. And many of them may choose not to teach in class and to teach online. So if I were to make a prediction, a university is going to try to avoid and see what happens over the next six to eight weeks. You're going to have some hybrid and what that ratio of hybrid teaching in the fall is going to be, how much is in person, how much is online, uh, I think is uh, really the decision to be determined. And let me just add one more complication here. And that complication is the problem of uh, a potential second wave, second uh, surge uh, in uh, call it November, uh, uh, October or November. And then you'd have to disperse again. Um, I will say one last word, all universities and colleges that I know of are thinking that uh, the Friday before Thanksgiving week, that's the last day of class. So they're going to truncate the, uh, even if they are on campus, they're going to truncate the on-campus segment, finals and study and all that will be done uh, remotely. Okay. Doug, down in, down in Austin, um, I think you, you have three children, uh, Cassidy, yeah, Benton, but- and Johnny, right? Correct. And what's going on? With, what's going on with their schooling? Well, first off, I graduated from the Ohio State University, so congratulations to the um, you know person who called oh, in from Ohio. Nice. It's a great school. Um, look, there's not one size fits all here for education in the United States. So let me just tell you, at my university at Rice, I teach. I give these dramatic lectures where I pace around with American history and use the blackboard. I can't do that this year. I'm going to have to sit just like I'm sitting now because it's, the option is going to be to the students whether they want to attend class with the mask and social distancing and larger spaces than normal. But if you don't feel comfortable, if you feel you have a pre-existing condition or you're a student who's worried about it, you can do it online. So that's that hybrid approach that Zeke was talking about. They're, they're, they, they, all of these midterm breaks in October are being blown out. People are going to be running it from late August till about Thanksgiving, and that's going to be the semester. It's in the economic interest of these universities to open, but some schools don't create campus life. I mean, yes, the California State University system um, is going all online, but they've never been marketing themselves as the college experience like a William & Mary um, would or Princeton would. And so I, and it's lots going to depend on regions and, and, uh, but all dorms, you're going to have to get temperature tested before you walk in. Um, they're going to, if there's suddenly an outbreak that occurs in a dormitory or in a classroom, it might be back to all online again. So it's going to be this mixed approach. For my kids, um, three of them, thanks for asking, um, in high school, it's pretty much the same thing. They all made it through this semester online, but the idea, the hope is in late August that you can have school, but before you line up and you get temperature tested before you come in, and they may have a week where a student in high school to divide the class in half in, in schools, you might be able to do one, one group stays at home one week, one group's in the class the other week. What nobody's really said properly is what about older teachers? I'm going to be 60. Uh, I have asthma. Uh, I've had it all my life. Uh, what's my risk for teaching? And that is going to be really social distancing a lot. And uh, also there may be people that put up a plastic front like you're seeing at a 7-Eleven or a drugstore right now um, to try to find ways to minimize uh, exposure if, God forbid, that starts hitting campuses in the fall which it, it will hit some schools. It's not going to hit all, 
Some schools will have to close. Some schools will stay open. It's going to be a mixed bag. As you said, one can size can't some... fit all at this point. Okay, we... Can, can I add I'm something sorry, about... Uh, yeah. Sure, to course. me, the big concern is is not so much higher education, partly because there are some ways to do remote learning for higher education. And the big problem is both pre-K and K through 12, um, especially for disadvantaged kids. You know, middle-class kids, upper-middle-class kids, their parents will make sure that they have books, that they're getting class lessons, uh, this kind of thing. But the bottom third or so of the distribution um, you know, if they miss a significant amount of school, that is going to have a long-term, a lifelong impact. Already one in six American kids doesn't graduate from high school. Those kids are cooked. And if they miss more school, it's going to increase the, the risk that we, that we have, uh, you know, a, a, a cohort that is functionally illiterate, that is functionally not numerate. Uh, every summer, the bottom third or so of the distribution returns to school having uh, lost a huge amount of information over the summer, while the, the high SES kids have actually risen uh, over the summer in terms of exam performance. And, you know, in terms of remote learning, there are 7 million American school kids who don't have internet at home. How are they supposed to learn? I do hope that one thing that comes out of uh, this is indeed a commitment for bandwidth for all. My hometown in rural Oregon was transformed by rural electrification. And the analog to rural electrification and the way that brought opportunity to so many rural towns across America is bandwidth for all. And when schools are closed, that underscores how much we need that. Yeah, good point. Okay. Can I say- uh, you We know, have another question right now. Yeah, go ahead. Is that Zeke? Go ahead. So. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> the delay is making it hard. So I think Nick is 100% right. And, you know, uh, young kid, Denmark started with, I think, grades one through four. Norway started with grades one through four. Um, I think um, we need to focus on the uh, those children. I'm actually a, an advocate for uh, summer camps, uh, summer day camps, because I think you can have them outdoors. You can ensure uh, uh, or minimize risks. You can have exercise and nutrition and maybe some learning over the summer. And that allows their parents to begin working too. Remember, part of school is it allows parents to um, actually be free so that they can work if uh, their businesses are going back to work uh, or and even if they're working at home to concentrate better. So I do think on the younger grades, as Nick said, we probably have to get it open. And the risks to kids are relatively small. It's the risk to adults that have to be managed. Um, uh, nothing in life is risk-free, but I think this is one of those areas where we really do uh, probably have to bite the bullet and uh, assume those risks as a society. Going in and allowing parents and uh, teachers to opt out. Okay, we've covered the spectrum there. I want to go right now to a question from a young man in New York City. Hi, I'm Atoje from New York. This question is for all the panelists. With the regulations on social distancing and wearing masks, how do you feel about people getting harassed and bullied for not wearing masks? All right, there have been 
um, uh, this whole thing about wearing masks and how people, people get very hostile. Uh, you, they get hostile both ways. But there have also been a number of incidents, including somebody in Flint, Michigan, uh, a guard, a security guard in a store who was shot and killed because um, tried to enforce this mask policy. So, so people see it, Nick, as you know, as, as their rights are being infringed on. And um, how do you deal with this? Because people, as I say, it's, this is getting more and more intense. What would, you, what would you tell somebody who doesn't want to wear a mask? You know, I'd say that it's not that that it's not that you're making a choice about whether or not to infect or to take a risk for yourself. You're taking a risk to other people who are around you, who may be immune compromised, who may be at much greater risk. And that one of the obligations of any citizen in a civilized society is to um, respect some limitations as as part of the benefits of that society. Uh, and it's comparable to uh, vaccinating one's kids to help achieve some herd immunity or to help 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 protect other kids who perhaps can't get vaccinations. And I mean, that's going to be another level down the road uh, that we're going to have to face when some people refuse right. vaccinations. And um, I, I just find it unbelievably sad that right now we are in a situation where people assert their political values by refusing to wear a mask. Um, there's something of an analogy in, in 2009 during the H1N1 flu, um, the first polling showed the Democrats and Republicans were approximately equally concerned about H1N1, which makes sense. It's a, you know, it's a virus. Why should uh, our attitudes toward it depend on politics? But then because Fox News, because Rush Limbaugh said that, oh, this is just an Obama hoax, uh, I'm not going to get vaccinated, then Republicans ended up saying that they were only half as likely to get vaccinated against H1N1 uh, as Democrats were to, to say that. And um, it appeared based on uh, vaccination rates and mortality around the country that uh, that people lost their lives as a result of their uh, political assertions and refusing to be vaccinated for it. Okay. Anybody else, Zeke or Doug, want to weigh in on the uh, the mask situation? Well, I think that word um, well, harassed. I mean, no no police, um, you know, should be harassing people. But what happens in this um, YouTube age is somebody gets a, a a video and it goes viral and it gets played over and over and over again. I've been impressed by my fellow citizens. I think most Americans are trying to do the right thing right now, and we don't have this a massive amount of civil disobedience and uproar. Yes, I can drive right now by some place where they're not social distancing at an outside bar here, but most places I go, I'm really uh, impressed at how respectful um, millions of Americans have been through that. I think our government has failed us, but I think the American people by and large are rising to the occasion, but it's the jerks that get a lot of the attention because they're breaking the, the norms and not social distancing or wearing a mask. And, and then all of these nonprofit groups that are making masks and people trying to communicate through Zoom in different forms, all of these philanthropic groups that are thrown themselves into, the, uh, into trying to confront this, the, the work of corporations that have gotten behind it. I find there's a lot functioning well in the United States. We just got trapped uh, out of this horrific um, res response by Trump and, and unpreparedness for the, uh, an infectious disease um, like COVID.
Zeke? Yeah, I think, you know, behavioral uh, uh, psychology tells us that, you know, if you attack people for doing something, they're going to become defensive and feel like they have to dig in more. What we really need to do is to establish wearing a mask, physical distancing and these things as the norm. And that if you're deviating, because people don't like to be out of the social norm, if you go to lots of places, you know, whether it's Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, you know, 90%, 99% of people wear masks. You would feel out of place if you didn't wear a mask. We, that's the kind of attitude we need to create in the United States. Um, and we need the leadership to create that. We need celebrities to get out there. That, that has to become the norm. And then people will he- okay. adhere. It's a process. Okay, we're gonna take one more question in this block and then we're gonna to go to, to life beyond COVID uh, situations. Uh, right now we have Steph from New York who has a question. Hi, my name is Stephanie and I'm from New York. This is a question for all of the panelists. How do you foresee Western attitudes around technology and privacy changing in response to COVID-19? A key to successful contact tracing in South Korea and Taiwan has been tracking individuals' movements via their cell phones. But there has been a legal and cultural resistance to this tracking in the US and Europe. Do you expect this dynamic to change in response to the virus? All right, this is emerging as something that's, that's, again, controversial, that people don't want to be tracked. They don't want to be traced. They don't want to have, it's an invasion of privacy. Um, what do you think about that, Zeke? Well, first, first of all, we already are. It may not be by the government, but you can call it Facebook and Google. Um, they know when you've left your house. They know when you've gone into a particular restaurant. Um, and it, I find it ironic that people are... I I don't want to be tracked for public health reasons. Well, for commercial reasons, we are tracked all the time uh, via our phone. So I think actually um, it is the case that there are some things technology can facilitate in terms of uh, um, contact tracing. Uh, So far, it hasn't been a big success in part, I think, because the tech companies haven't actually put their back into it because they're afraid precisely that you'll find out how much information they have on you. Um, but I, d- I do think we have a, a population that is hostile, you know, some portion to the government having that information, some portion to the corporations having that information, worried about it being commercialized, worried about it being abused. So we do need some, as the Center for American Progress report we developed, we need a trusted intermediary who can get this data, promise not to commercialize it, promise not to combine it with other data that uh, isn't health related, and be willing to absolutely destroy that information after 45 days when it becomes not helpful for public health reasons. And I think that's what the state we have to get to in the United States. Um, We aren't comfortable with tech companies or with the government doing it. Um, So we, I think, would be willing to give up that information if we trusted the organization that was getting it was had only one purpose, and that is to protect our health. I was going to say, how are you going to find a trusted intermediary? Do you have one? Do you have one? Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we propose the uh, um, Association of State uh, and Territorial Health Officers. We could create one. I do think that's not impossible. Um, I do think that there are trusted people in this country um, who could serve that role or trusted organizations that could serve that role. Okay, um, because... 
The polls do show that people, they don't want it in the hands of the federal government. They, they're fine if it's in the hands of a health organization or they're finer with it. Um, so that's an interesting, it's an interesting point. Um, at this point, I want to go to a question that came from Denise Linden, who's in nearby Southbury, Connecticut. And she wants to know the biggest change you see ahead in our lives because of COVID-19. And I'm going to start with start with uh, Nick on that. Well, so Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm optimistic that there will be profound change. Uh, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I'm not so convinced. But I do think that just as we came out of um, the Great Depression and embraced Social Security, that there is an opportunity here to recognize some of the failings of our society, of our institutions, of our health response, of our economic response, and uh, embrace, I mean, I mentioned bandwidth for all a little bit ago. Bandwidth for all would be, you know, a, a, a enormously progressive step forward for much of the country. Um, finally achieving real universal um, medical coverage um, and, and dental too while we're at it. You know, universal uh, childcare uh, of the kind that is found everywhere else. I think that infectious diseases have underscored some of these risk factors to the whole society in ways that may perhaps create a certain amount of political momentum that make that possible. It's just whether that is actually achieved, it's gonna depend upon us and, and how we exercise our political rights in the years ahead. Okay, Doug, let me ask you, because it's been suggested that we shouldn't wanna go back to the normal that we have, that we should, have, we should forge a, a better new normal. And given that the economy is cratering, given the unemployment stats at this point, um, it seems almost that we're poised for an FDR moment. Do you see something like a new New Deal possibly in the future? Well, I would uh, certainly hope we could do something like FDR did with the Civilian Conservation Corps during the Great Depression or with John F. Kennedy's Peace Corps and AmeriCorps, which is a medical corps in the United States where you're getting a almost like a National Guard of an infrastructure where in an emergency people could be called to serve. Uh, um, not just nurses and doctors, but people that get perhaps two-year training uh, to be able to be a, a hospital assistant or people that can go to the Navajo Nation or uh, parts of Appalachia or the worst parts of Detroit and immediately come in as you would with the SWAT team. So we're not caught so unprepared. I think something like that could be approved on a bipartisan way in the United States. But the problem I see coming now is going to be, you know, everything recently has been about urbanization and a young generation wanting to live right in the belly of downtowns of cities. Some people now might be afraid to be downtown. Are, are urban, are skyscrapers cruise ships? Uh, or should we be living out in the suburbia? Or is it going to be more of an abandonment uh, um, of, of urban centers for 
um, satellite areas or living more in rural America, I'll be curious to see. But I know a lot of people are getting nervous about being around people. And the idea that in two years from now, everybody's going to crowd together back to work and be on subways and going right into in New York City like it used to be. I'm not so sure if people want to ride subways anymore. Well, then how do working people get to work in the city and what does it mean for downtown real estate and i think we're in for a great redefinition of living in, and one of my favorite writers uh, wendell berry a poet um, a, a agrarianist from kentucky's written about this for years and he he might be right i mean that people need to recognize space land having conservation stewardship in smaller communities may be a more effective way to live than packing people in the cities which are, are by nature are going to be prone for um, viral and, and, um, and bacterial um, problems. Theodore Roosevelt himself suggested that America should be medium-sized cities, that the giant metropolis creates so many problems of public health concern. Well, we thought we got away from all that. We're the 21st century now. But now we see that if you take certain neighborhoods and, and, and you can see how COVID's operating in a Detroit or Philadelphia or New York in particular neighborhoods or Houston in the poor neighborhoods, it creates um, a skepticism on this idea of packing people together one on top of one another in public housing and, and uh, urban sort of um, living scapes. I'm not saying they get abandoned, they're not, but I think people are gonna start thinking about their lives and you may see states like Idaho and Montana, uh, Colorado grow in population as people start imagining a life with some room to move around them. Okay, Zeke, what's your big change? So uh, I would uh, agree with Nick. I think um, there are two things that I've seen um, or I think COVID is going to produce. One is we've got this huge level of uncertainty. We've got the uncertainty that surrounds uh, the virus itself, the healthcare system. And then we have this economic uncertainty that it's created for lots of people, unemployment. Uh, will they be able to pay the rent? Will they actually be able to feed their kids the long lines at food pantries? I think people are going to respond to that uncertainty and want just the opposite. We want security. And we expect our government to provide a secure safety net. We have had among Western countries the most holy and inadequate safety net. Uh, lots of people fall through. You call someone a contractor, they no longer have benefits, they don't have unemployment, they don't have sick leave, uh, they don't have retirement, they don't have health care. We're going to solve those problems, I believe. I believe there's going to be a huge amount of pressure um, because it's good for people. Um, you can't no, any longer as an employer not count those contractors and not contribute to providing them benefits. We're going to have to figure out a different benefit system. I do also think we're going to have to figure out a new universal coverage arrangement, having places like Texas, Georgia, North Carolina, and Florida with big COVID situations not have an expanded Medicaid for these newly unemployed, I think is going to become unacceptable. The second change is related to how we raise children. We're realizing all the infrastructure we need to raise healthy children. Schools, after-school activities, girls and boys centers. We are appreciating all the work that great teachers do. I think you're going to see a resurgence of interest in that. And again, to pick up on what Nick said, child care, you know, early childhood interventions, pre-K, universal pre-K 
um, uh, recommitment. We were seeing this before uh, COVID-19 with a lot of the wins by teachers uh, and uh, in strikes. I think you're going to see a re-recognition that we have to seriously invest not just in the education, but all the infrastructure around education, the, the uh, after-school sports, the dance classes, the band, the plays, and all of that stuff. And I do think this sort of thinking about how we can make life better for families could be a real message uh, coming out of this uh, COVID-19. That would be wonderful. Uh, Zeke, while I have you, there have been folks, I think, submitting questions as we've been on air here. And uh, a lot of people want to know about a vaccine. This, this past week when Dr. Bright testified, Dr. Rick Bright, um, vaccine expert, he threw some cold water on the whole notion of this timeline that it's 12 to 18 months away. Um, two questions. What is your prediction on the vaccine? And Nick raised this in his column. What if there is never a vaccine? <laughs> so, um, look, we've been working on uh, trying to get a vaccine for HIV AIDS for decades, and we're nowhere close. Uh, COVID may be uh, different. Um, I do think the rhetoric coming out of the White House in the last week about we're going to have a vaccine before the end of the year, very unlikely. We have uh, here's why I'm more optimistic, though. We have four kinds of approaches to it. We have, uh, you know, a hundred or so different uh, companies working on it and different potential uh, um, vaccine possibilities. Uh, and we probably have more brain power working on this problem than on any single biological problem we've had, uh, certainly in the last uh, 40 or 50 years. Um, and I do think we're going to get something. I don't think it's going to happen in the next, uh, call it eight months before uh, January 1st. I do think 12 to 18 months uh, is a possibility. But I have noted many, many times that everyone who is responsible and says that always has the caveat. And I think uh, Rick Bright put it correctly. If everything goes perfectly, not everything is going to go perfectly. There will be some problems. Um, uh, but I do think we can hit that level. That doesn't mean all 330 million Americans, much less the 7.5 billion people in the uh, whole earth are going to get a vaccine by the end of 2021. We're going to have to, you know, we're going to be able to develop it and we shouldn't stop after we get the first because the first may not be the best. It may be good, but not great. Um, so I do think we're going to be able to, uh, bet on, you know, between four and 10 of them and see how they work. Um, we're going to see in the fall when we have this resurgent, that's when we're really going to begin testing them. But remember, you have to test thousands and thousands of people. Um, and that's not done overnight. Um, and, and so I think it's going to take longer than most people, uh, certainly than the president has announced. And uh, 12 to 18 months is the earliest we're likely to have something that's effective and that doesn't mean that all of us will get it by 12 or 18 months. Okay. Did you address what happens if we never get one? Oh, well, if we never get one, we're going to end up, no, we're going to end up getting to some level of herd immunity with lots, tens of thousands, millions of people really dying uh, from COVID-19. And it's going to take a lot more years uh, of that. Um, it, that's 
that is a very horrific uh, possibility um, because you'll only be able to get out there uh, and have people feel comfortable uh, when there's a kind of herd immunity that has dampened down the infection rate. Um, and that requires, you know, in the United States to people infected. Um, if we have, call it 15 or 20 million people now, uh, that would be 10 times the level we have now. Uh, you can see how many deaths we might get uh, if we have to get there. Uh, that That's a pretty horrific scenario. Okay. At this point, I just want to make note that we, we really are being flooded with questions and we have some pre-taped questions we're not going to be able to get to. Um, and I apologize for that. I hope you've heard your question answered during this broadcast at some point. But we are, as I see, running out of time. So I'm going to move on at this point. And um, I'm going to ask that Caroline from Connecticut ask her question. Hi. My name is Caroline Consolving, and I wanted to ask, what do we have to look forward to? Could you each discuss the silver linings in our future? Thank you. Who wants to start on the silver linings? We have to leave people with hope. There's, it's, it does seem that the negativity is oppressive and it's a hard thing to live with. So, Nick, what do you think the silver lining is? If you think of it the broadest level about challenges for this country, you know, beyond COVID um, and opportunities to address them, then it does seem to me as if in many ways the U.S. went awry in about the 1970s. And until then, we had the highest high school graduation rates in the world. And we pretty much invented the mass high school attendance. We had incarceration rates that were comparable to those of other countries. Our health uh, rates were similar to those of other OECD countries. Uh, our spending, uh, government spending as a share of GDP was comparable to those of other countries. And in the 50 years since, we systematically took policy decisions that resulted in underinvestment in American human capital, so that we now lag way behind other countries in high school graduation, in functional literacy, mass incarceration increased uh, sevenfold, which had devastating effects on the American family. Um, we had, we, we've had uh, uh, deaths of despair um, uh, at a colossal rate, so that life expectancy fell three years in a row in the U.S. in a way that was not true in other countries. And, you know, I, this is very personal to me. I wrote about it in our last book. A quarter of the kids on my old school bus in Yamhill, Oregon, are dead from uh, drugs, alcohol, and suicide. And that was because they didn't have a skill set that would enable them to compete in the job market today in a way that I think if they had grown up in Canada, they might have. And so I think this is a 50-year mistake that the U.S. Uh, took. I think that happened in part because of Nixon's Southern strategy and a tendency to demonize investments in social services and in human capital uh, as uh, highly racialized. I think and I hope that there is an opportunity to address that in part because it is now so obvious that the consequences affect everybody of every complexion and that you have, uh, you know, white people as well as black and brown people who are dying because of lack of access to health care or because they don't get paid sick leave, um, who 
uh, aren't able to compete in a global job market because they don't have uh, that even that high school degree, let alone that college education. And American history, as Arthur Schlesinger noted, it moves in cycles. I've wondered if that 50-year cycle may not be ending. You know, it seemed to me it maybe reached its apex in Kansas a few years ago when uh, Governor Sam Brownback cut taxes so much that Kansas schools were devastated and Kansas Republicans rose up and rebelled and said, tax us more, we want better right. schools. Um, you know, Idaho and Utah expanded Medicaid. Uh, it's crazy that those other remaining 14 states haven't expanded Medicaid. I, you know, I think that there is a chance now to correct this, what seems to me a 50-year wrong turn in American history in ways that will lead to new investments in the next generation of Americans and make, make America competitive in the world today and strengthen it. Um, in ways that will be will resound for the benefit of of this country and our citizens for years and years to come. How's that for okay, optimism? So the last question to you, mm -hmm. Nick. Uh, that well, that stunning. Um, I want to <laughs> ask you though, because you also have three children, Nick. And ten years ago, you were interviewed by Mother Jones, and you said you were surprisingly optimistic. And I, and you've said you're optimistic on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We got that part, but with your children. Are you optimistic for the world that they're moving into? I'm guardedly optimistic. Um, at a global level, I'm more clearly optimistic, partly because of investments in uh, education and healthcare. And you know, in the broad sweep of time, you you know, look. Until I was a child, a majority of human beings had always been illiterate. Um, 50% illiter uh, literacy was achieved worldwide for adults only in the 1960s. Now we're pushing toward 90% global literacy. That, that's transformative. Um, the improvements in healthcare because of vaccines, sanitation, et cetera, globally, the decline in fertility, all these things are really changing uh, the globe in ways that I think are, are profoundly encouraging, uh, fewer than um, uh, you know, the, the share of people, I think every day, you know, the 300,000 people will get access to electricity for the first time. Now, COVID is going to lead to a real step back. There is going to be a hunger pandemic and illiteracy pandemic globally as a consequence of this. I do think that they will be temporary. In the U.S., I'm guardedly optimistic, but I don't think that, you know, I think it whether we seize advantage of these opportunities really is, is we've come to a fork in the road and we can continue on the, on the path that we've been on for the last 50 years where we underinvest in Americans, where we have a safety net that allows many, many people to, to fall through, where we uh, talk about personal responsibility as being the be all and end all um, and uh, neglect the, our social responsibility for helping kids and infants achieve some kind of better outcomes. And um, it's, we have a, maybe it's not a function of exactly being optimistic or, or pessimistic, but we have the tools <laughs> in this country to produce better outcomes. And the question is, can we right. seize those tools and implement them? Can we do it? Okay. Okay. I'm gonna take that as a yes, Nick. Um, 
let me just, because we are very close to being out of time. Um, I'm going to have you, see, give your silver lining, and then I'm going to go to Doug. What's your silver lining? Well, I, I do think that we're at an uh, inflection point. I would agree with Nick. I do think that uh, uh, we've had it. I think Donald Trump is the obvious logical play out of uh, a strategy that uh, has tried to divide the country rather than unite the country. Um, largely, but not exclusively along racial lines. It's also been along lines of uh, academic achievement, coast versus in, uh, internal. Um, but I think Donald Trump is the embodiment of the end of it. And I think most people are uh, uh, find that, you know, it, it, its problems have been revealed by COVID. And I think it will deflect us. The question is whether we have the political system that can actually respond and overcome the entrenched interests that resist that kind of reform. Um, and I do think with strong leadership uh, and a change in the Senate, uh, you will see or able to see uh, a change in these kind of policies. The one thing that gives me serious pause is um, uh, climate change. And I, uh, we, it's been very hard for the country to take it seriously, a bit like COVID. Low risk, low risk event with very enormous impacts. We're not good at responding to those in the United States because it requires a sustained investment. It requires being willing to invest for low risk events um, and not an acute episode. Um, and I think uh, that is going to be the real test of the country. Can we get a kind of infrastructure bill that allows us to address climate change in a systematic way uh, and it's going to require serious investment uh, over time. Um, and I'm, I'm worried about that. And COVID doesn't directly speak to that, doesn't directly catalyze that element of the change. Okay. Doug, I'm going to have you wrap this up, and I'm going to change the question slightly by asking you, what lesson you want your children to take away from this period in time? Uh, well, they're going to be part of the COVID-19 generation, the ones that had their graduations truncated, that had to start doing online education, that got to watch a nation in peril and see how uh, our generation, the baby boomers, screwed up so much. But I really want them to have hope, hope, hope to change the world. I'm writing a book right now called Silent Spring Revolution about the environmental movement of the 1960s and 70s. And we did do a lot. Young people put their shoulder to the wheel. We did create an environmental protection agency. We forced people like Richard Nixon to do marine protection. You know, um, we, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, spurred a generation. So I think this new generation's my silver lining that they maybe have had it with our mistakes. Uh, I see a much greater earth watch awareness. Uh, when you talk to young people, they are concerned about climate change. I don't know how soon it's going to come, but we are destroying the planet right now. We're poisoning the air and skies. We saw what's happening to the Amazon and Australia and California wildfires and increased cyclonic activity. And this is a game changer of uh, what we're doing to the planet with climate change. It is, it's going to be hard to recover if we don't move quickly. And I'm afraid uh, they, the hope's going to be with the next generation that could put the climate 
challenge number one because it's connected to public health, it's connected to famine, it's connected to pestilence, and everything runs off of the environment. Where this, if anything, COVID-19 taught you with people being arrested and they're with their upper respiratory systems, unable to breathe, and yet we're pouring pollutants in our atmosphere that are causing people to have heart disease and increased asthma, increased respiratory illnesses. We've got to start making, uh, taking care of the planet in a new kind of way. That's a big order, but it's going to come through educational change and thinking of a new generation, not, um, you know, every four years there's a new election and, um, you know, magic's occurred because one party's controlling this and one party's controlling that. As we saw, Donald Trump just undid so many executive orders of Barack Obama on the environment. They're gutting the uh, America right now. Uh, any of all of our environmental protections all the way back to Richard Nixon are being unraveled. So politics can only do so much. It's going to take the heart of a new generation to want to save the planet. Okay. Heart of a new generation, a good place to end on. I, I don't even have the words to thank our guests for donating their time and their talent today. Um, and as, as everyone knows, the proceeds from this broadcast go to help the American Nurses Foundation Coronavirus Fund and other charities on the front lines of this pandemic. So we are just enormously grateful to have you all here today. Thank you very much. Before we break away, I want to thank you for joining us. You'll be able to find the rest of our season wherever you get your podcasts. And our next episode will be released in about two weeks. But there's more conversation on tap before then. If you're worried about the safety of your vote or the safety of the upcoming election in November, if you're worried about the rule of law being under siege, have we got a show for you. Our next virtual town hall will record live on May 31st. Joining us will be former U.S. attorney and NBC analyst Joyce Vance, former Deputy Solicitor General Neil Katyal, and former Department of Justice official Chuck Rosenberg. Learn more and register at conversationsonthegreen.com. The Conversations on the Green podcast is a partnership with Connecticut Public Radio. Our producer is Jay Holt. <laughs>